morning. Thank you, Rick, for reading our text this morning. I'm Mike Stroh, one of the pastors here. I want to add my word of welcome to everybody, especially if it's your first time with us. We're honored that you chose to worship with us this morning. Well, we all love stories with a happy ending. Maybe you grew up hearing stories and fairy tales with that most famous of all endings. They all lived happily ever after. Yeah, you've heard it before. Rarely, though, do modern stories end on the same note. Maybe you've noticed that. Even happy endings in most modern stories often have some complexity. It's not quite happily ever after completely, right? With all that was gained, the characters likely suffered greatly. They sacrificed much to achieve whatever their goal was, not to mention the hardships of life that the characters will surely face after the story ends. So happily ever after feels a bit artificial to us, maybe. It's not quite life as we experience it. So sometimes that ending can feel a bit hollow or fake. The fantasy novel The Eyes of the Dragon by Stephen King ends this way. Did they all live happily ever after? They did not. No one ever does in spite of what the stories may say. They had their good days and they had their bad days. I like the honesty of that ending. But what about the way we look at heaven? The ending to the story that God has been writing and crafting for all human history. There is so much we've seen over the last several weeks to look forward to about heaven, but we surely don't know everything. Is it too good to be true to think we will really be happily ever after? What about all our unanswered questions? I mean, won't there be anything we will wish we're different when we get there. Well, this morning, we come to the end of our series on heaven. We've seen that Scripture has a lot to say about our future home, more than we often realize. In the last eight or nine weeks, we still haven't come close to exhausting what the Bible says about heaven. And several in the church body have shared how they've been impacted by our study of heaven because the truth about heaven isn't some distant thing on the horizon, but it's meant to impact our lives now. It's a future hope that has meaning and purpose for us right now. Something I've really enjoyed throughout the series is that we've been able to incorporate questions we've received from the body along the way that have impacted the trajectory of our series. And so we want to conclude this morning our series on heaven by addressing three questions that we haven't been able to really uh, address directly yet. And these come from members of the body of all ages, including some of the kids in the meadow. Scripture doesn't give us definitive answers to all of these questions, let me say that up front. But I think we can connect some dots to see how biblical truth can point us in hopefully a clearer direction. So let's approach these questions and passages with open hearts, because whatever our remaining questions are about heaven, we want to know how do we handle it when God doesn't answer all of our questions or doesn't answer them to the degree that we would like him to. Can we really trust God with our eternal destiny, even when there are things we don't know? Can we still have unanswered questions and still truly long for heaven? 
So let's bring our questions to God this morning with the invitation to trust him and to, pe- to depend more deeply on our loving Father. Let's pray together as we turn to Scripture. Well, our Father, we give you thanks for who you are. We have sang about it this morning, your goodness. We acknowledge that you are our good Father. You are good all the time. And so, Father, we rest our faith, we rest our whole selves on that truth this morning. Even when we're going through trials and doubts and grief, Father, you showed us your love, you showed us your goodness definitively, once for all, as Jesus came and died on the cross for us. So there's no longer any question of whether you are good or not. And so we come together to your word totally dependent on you to open our eyes, to open our hearts to your truth. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first question we're going to look at this morning came from an adult class when we first started the series. And the question went something like this. What will be the limits of our knowledge in heaven? Or what will we know in heaven? Will we know everything when we get to heaven? It seems a lot of people assume that the minute we get to heaven, we will suddenly know everything. And if not immediately, we at least assume we'll have all our questions answered very, very soon. Even just recently, I heard someone say, the first thing I do the minute I get to heaven is say, God, answer this question, and then this question, and this question. We'll have glorified bodies in heaven, as we've seen, which includes a glorified mind. But does that mean we will know everything? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us, so let's move on to the next question. It's going to be a short sermon. Now, let's look at what clues we do have. What does Scripture, what direction does Scripture point us in? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So Paul compares our current knowledge or our current spiritual perception uh, to a mirror in the ancient world. And if you know anything about mirrors in the ancient world, they had many imperfections. And in the same way, we don't see everything spiritually. We certainly don't know everything. And what we do see and understand, we still don't grasp or see completely. But in heaven, Paul is saying, we will see clearly. He says that now we know in part, then we will know fully. What's he saying? That now we know a little bit, but then we'll know it all? Well, that's not the word he chooses to use. He could have said, we'll know everything, but instead he says, we will know fully. To know here and to know fully come from two different but related Greek words. To know here is general knowledge in life, which in this case is incomplete knowledge. But the word for knowing fully means to become thoroughly acquainted with, to know accurately, to know well. So the difference here isn't so much a quantity of knowledge, but it's a quality of knowledge. Because what will change the minute we get to heaven is that all the barriers to our knowledge, to our understanding, to our spiritual sight will be removed. No more lies, no more half-truths for us to have to sort through and argue about. No more misunderstandings, no more confirmation bias, no more faulty memories. 
We'll be able to see spiritual realities that we could only dream of here on earth. But that still doesn't mean we'll know everything. Because only God is omniscient or all-knowing. That's one of his attributes of being God. Even the angels don't know everything, Peter seems to tell us in his first letter. Before the fall, Adam and Eve didn't know everything. Jesus even gained wisdom, according to Luke chapter 2. Learning is such an important part of being human, we have to ask, why would that stop in heaven? For the first time, our curiosity, our capacity for learning will be unhindered. So why would we stop learning? Paul says in Ephesians 2 that in the coming ages, God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. That sounds to me like for all eternity, God will be unfolding more and more of who he is. We will learn about God and his greatness and his glory and his love for all eternity. And we will never exhaust his infinite attributes. We'll learn from one another for eternity. We'll hear about our favorite Bible stories firsthand from people who were there. We'll talk theology with Paul. We'll learn wisdom from Solomon. We'll hear from Mary Magdalene about what it was like to see the risen Christ at the tomb. We'll sit at the feet of Jesus as his disciples did when he was on earth. So I'm not quite sure the very first thing we do when we'll get to heaven is say, okay, God, I've got a list of questions here for you to answer. Now, we will stand in awe at the very presence of God, no longer seeing reality through a distorted mirror, but face to face with God, the creator of our reality. And seeing God face to face will frame all other answers that we seek. So despite people's assumptions, the Bible never suggests we will know everything when we get to heaven. And I would argue instead we will be learning for all eternity. So that understanding, knowing that we probably won't have all the answers even in heaven, has something to say uh, for our lives right now. That we should stop worrying so much, as we often do, about having all the answers, about knowing it all, as if knowledge and godliness were the same thing. The beginning of knowledge, according to Scripture, is what? The fear of the Lord. Our aim should be knowing about God, not as the end, but as the means to knowing Him more. To growing in our relationship with God. That will continue for eternity. The second question we want to look at this morning came from Kids in the Meadow. The kids asked if our pets would be in heaven. And I know it's not just the kids that wonder about that. I've wondered about that my whole life too. God has a way of timing these things for me often with my sermons at least. Just last week our beloved family dog had to be put to sleep. For months before, as her health was declining, we saw this coming, and so this question has been circling in our home for quite a while. And now, in their grief, our kids have been asking this question with a greater intensity. If you're an animal person, you've probably been in the same situation before, because it's incredible, even with animals, the relational bond that can form. We have to wonder, will those bonds be restored in God's new heaven and earth? 
We don't have time to really dive in fully to this question, so for a complete theological treatment, I direct you to the 1989 film, All Dogs Go to Heaven. The title gives away the answer, so there it is. I don't need to say much more. At least we know about dogs. Cats, we're not so sure about. But if that doesn't satisfy you, let's see if the Bible does give us any more direction than that. First of all, we need to remember that human beings uniquely are made in God's image. Jesus died and rose again for us human beings. Not for animals, not for angels. He gave his life for us. But does that mean animals have no part in God's eternal plan? We know animals have a place in God's renewed heaven and earth. We heard it already this morning in the call to worship from Isaiah chapter 11. This incredible picture of the coming kingdom. What did Isaiah say? The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. What incredible, what an incredible picture. Now this language, you could say, well, that's just a symbol of peace. And it is symbolic of peace, but that doesn't mean there's no truth in the symbol. Several other passages mention animals in God's kingdom. Remember, caring for animals was part of the original creation mandate that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. We would assume that would be part of the work that we will do for eternity, we talked about some weeks back. Caring for God's creation as he originally intended it. So animals will be in heaven. But what about the animals we've known? Turn to Romans chapter 8, if you have a Bible in front of you. Romans chapter 8. It's important to remember that though Jesus died uniquely for human beings, part of his plan of redemption is rescuing all creation from the effects of the curse and death itself. As we've been seeing throughout our series on heaven, God's plan is to renew heaven and earth. So look at Romans 8, starting in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Well, there's a lot that Paul says here. But all creation, he says, suffers from the curse thanks to human sin. So all creation longs for that day when it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Well, the question still remains, on the renewed earth, will God create brand new animals Will at least some of those animals be the ones we've lived with here on earth? Well, we can't be certain on this point. But it makes more sense to me that God would bring back those very animals that longed, whether they knew it or not, the animals that longed with all creation for that very freedom. 
Because if animals now are suffering in a fallen world thanks to us, it follows the same animals who suffered because of us might experience restoration because of Christ. As we've been talking about this question with our kids over the last several weeks, really, they're very perceptive, and they've caught on to the fact that Scripture doesn't definitively promise this. They've said, but we don't know for sure that we'll see her again. Now, as I've tried to say, my own view is that I do believe we will see our pets again. But ultimately, this is where we have to cast ourselves on the goodness of God. The same God who loves us, the same God who loves all of his creation, including our pets, will one day make all things new. He will make all things right. So we come back to our original framing question, can God really be trusted? Because heaven will be better, not worse, than we imagine here. Heaven will be better. And that same truth leads us to our last question for this morning. What about marriage and our other relationships here on earth? Will they continue in heaven? Turn to Matthew 22. We heard this text for our scripture reading. This is the one most people look to, at least on the question of marriage in heaven. And for some, frankly, Jesus' teaching here brings some angst or disappointment. But let's look at it and see what he really says. Matthew 22, starting in verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. They asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now before we get to Jesus' answer, let's notice a couple things. Very, very important. This question comes from who? The Sadducees. What do we know about the Sadducees that Matthew tells us? They don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. Helps you remember that. So this question isn't even genuine. They're trying to trap him. They're trying even to mock his teaching. So this is no genuine question about heaven like the ones we've been getting from the body. But despite their intentions, Jesus does use it for a teaching moment, as he always does. For the crowd listening in, I think more than the Sadducees who asked it. But look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, you are wrong. It's a nice answer to your question. You're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So it's important to keep in mind here, the main point Jesus is teaching here is about the resurrection. He only mentions marriage in heaven here in passing. So we need to keep that in mind. But verse 30 is still the most direct answer we have to this question in the Bible. So look at it again, verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus doesn't say we become angels. Remember, we saw in our series that's not true. We're human beings. We're not angels. 
He only says we'll be like angels in this respect, that we'll be outside the institution of marriage, at least as we know it now. The Sadducees' question, as ingenuous as it was, it really does bring up some important issues for those who have married more than once, and especially for those who have married after the death of a first spouse one or two times. You're not going to get to heaven, and people are going to be arguing over who your real spouse is. Okay, that's not going to happen. So Jesus frees us from that. But as I mentioned, this teaching does bring some sadness to people, those who have great marriages, maybe fearing that what Jesus is saying here, that their closest earthly relationship will end. Jesus isn't saying our relationship with our spouse will end. He's only saying that in some way it will be different from marriage as we know it now. Because ultimately, we will all be part of the eternal marriage, the marriage of Christ and his people. The Bible calls the church the bride of Christ. And we see in Scripture that earthly marriage is meant to point us to that ultimate marriage, when all of God's people, married and single, are united with Christ for eternity. Here, too, we have to rest in the goodness of God. As great as earthly marriage can be, the heavenly marriage will be even better. But that doesn't mean we won't have relationship with our husband and wife. That would be ridiculous. Remember, heaven is a continuation. Heaven is a perfecting of our lives. Now, we're not starting over from scratch. So let's trust God's goodness when we need to fill in the gaps. And not filling in the blanks of what we don't know by assuming the worst. Randy Alcorn so wisely reminds us on this question that heaven is a place of gain, not loss. Did you hear that? Heaven is a place of gain, not loss. This is such an important truth for us to get a hold of about heaven in general, about the questions we've seen this morning, and the rest of the unanswered questions that you may have especially in our doubts and our struggles with all that we don't know. Heaven is a place of gain, not loss. This applies not just to the question of marriage, but all of our earthly relationships with our children, with close friends. These relationships won't be diminished, only made better. W.A. Criswell was once asked if we'll even know each other when we get to heaven. His answer was that we won't really know each other until we get to heaven. We will finally be the men and women that God created us to be without the effects of sin in the fallen world around us. Heaven is a place of gain ultimately because of Jesus Christ. The eternal life we gain is because of the life he gave up for us. So if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I invite you to consider what the Bible says about your need for him. About what it means to receive the free gift of salvation and forgiveness and life by entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For those of us who know heaven is our home, let's let these truths that we've explored this morning and for the last several weeks grow our longing for heaven and ultimately our longing for Christ, our bridegroom. Now maybe we've answered some of the questions you've had Certainly, we haven't been able to answer them all. Chances are you have more questions. I know I do. Some of our questions, Scripture answers. Some, Scripture doesn't answer. 
But again, the most important thing about heaven is a person, not the answers to our questions. God's presence with us will be the greatest thing about heaven. Because of Jesus, we have a taste of that now. If his presence will be enough for us in eternity, I think God's presence is enough for us in the problems that we'll face this week. What do you think? If we can trust his goodness and cast ourselves on his love for all eternity, I think we can trust him with the worries and the uncertainties that we're facing right now. Because we are equipped in Christ with his provision to live today in light of heaven. Paul said it best in Philippians 1, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. To die is gain. Paul said, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So in this light, maybe happily ever after doesn't sound that far off, does it? It doesn't sound too good to be true because in Christ it is true. This is the story that God is telling. This is the story that God has invited us to be a part of. What an incredible hope is ours in Christ. Do you know that hope? Are you living it? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that when we could never earn our place with you in heaven, Jesus came to us and paid our way. We thank you for hope that is nothing but a gift. A hope that we have no matter what we face in this life, no matter what we suffer, no matter what trials come to us, we have this hope because of Jesus Christ. And so grow us as a church body to live out this hope so that those around us in our spheres of influence, personally, and in our surrounding community here, would see this hope in us, that they would long to have the same hope that we do. Grow our longing for heaven. Grow our longing for Christ, our bridegroom. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Let us stand.